0: Today, we are finishing up the book of James, and we know that conclusions and last words usually mean a lot, and these are James's last words to his people. The question is, what do they tell you about his passion and his commitments? Well, let's look real briefly, just two verses, James 5, 19, and 20. My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we're grateful for your word, and we ask that you would be with us now as we uh, look into it and sit under it. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply uh, these words to our hearts that you would uh, draw us to the truth that Jesus, as Son of God, entered Jerusalem uh, to die on our behalf and rose three days later. Help us to draw near to this truth that we might be transformed and we might live new lives that reflect this goodness, this love, this grace that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, had a group of close high school friends, and uh, we still see each other. Uh, from time to time every few years. And these guys saw me at my adolescent worst. So you can imagine they find me being a pastor quite humorous. Uh, But God has actually used the, the sharp curve in my life to open up conversations about our spiritual lives and beliefs when we get together. I remember we were back for our 20th high school reunion, and I was talking to one of my buddies, happens to be Jewish, One of the only Jewish kids uh, in our large graduating class, he lives now in L.A., he's doing very well, and he's involved in his faith community down there. And we're always joking, and he's always ribbing me about religious stuff. And so we were talking, and he said something like, I bet Christmas and Easter are really big days for you guys. And I said something like, yeah, I mean, very special days, lots of people. He said, lots of money, too. I asked him, what do you mean? He said, well, the money you take in from ticket sales. I was like, selling tickets? do you do that for the high holy days? He said, yes, it's very important financially for us. And I said, that's a really interesting idea. (laughs) Expect an email from us about prices for seating arrangements. And uh, I said, that's a really interesting idea. I've actually never heard of that before. Um, We don't do that because, you know, we think that might keep people away. You know, and we want as many people to come as possible. And, And without missing a beat, he says, not us. We don't want any more people we're all set. And we both laughed. See, most Christian churches say they want to add to their numbers, bring in more people. But many churches can give off the vibe that they only want the right kind of people, the good people, the strong people, the people who meet their high standards. And some people read James this way. He gives more commands in five chapters than any other book in the New Testament. Some think that James doesn't fit into the broader New Testament's proclamation of grace. But that's not accurate. James wants his people's lives to more and more match their confession of faith. And rather than self-righteous elitism, this kind of single-heartedness and commitment to Jesus should lead to open-hearted compassion and mission. How do I know? Well, what is James' last word to his people? It isn't, remain strong. Stay consistent or else. It's go get the people who've wandered off. The ones who are practicing injustice. The ones who've made friends with the world. The ones who are double-minded. The ones who can't shut their mouths and keep on boasting. Go get them. Bring them back home. This book of James is about grace after all. And we'll look at these two verses under two headings. James is telling his people and us to call people to the truth And count the cost. Call people to the truth and count the cost. So, first, James says here to call people to the truth. The question is well, what is the truth? And I said that James has more commands than any other five chapters in the New Testament. Is that the truth he wants people called back to? Here are some of his commands Count it as joy when you meet trials, ask for wisdom and faith, don't question God's goodness. Avoid the anger of man. Put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. Bridle your tongue. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Keep yourself unstained from the world. That's just the first chapter. I'm not going to hit them all. But James will go on to show no partiality, no judging or cursing, anyone. Avoid bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. No friendship with the world. No speaking evil of each other. No boastful plans. Wait patiently for God's justice. Pray in all circumstances. James is commanding his people to live consistently with their Christian convictions. Consistency in anything is hard. It's hard to exercise consistently. With all of these commands and more, James is setting a super-high bar. So it's easy to imagine that on the one hand, a lot of people who were a part of these churches would ultimately throw up their hands and surrender and say, I, "I can't live up to all these demands." They'll just leave or maybe wander away. No one can be this consistent. And on the other hand, the people who remain would feel really good about themselves, right? They take this really seriously. They're made of the right stuff. They're simply better than all those losers who have left. In high school, I was a captain, captain of our Quiz Bowl team. Quiz Bowl is basically trivia night with buzzers. And uh, we were pretty good, won some tournaments in the St. Louis metro area. So I go off to college, it's freshman year, and you know, when you're, you're a freshman, you're trying to find your people. So I went to the quiz bowl club for my university. These were not my people. Their level of knowledge, but more than that, their level of commitment to quiz bowl culture was just too much for me. And there wasn't any interest on their part in a new guy joining them. There was no welcome or hospitality or bridge for how one can come to love Quiz Bowl and Quiz Bowl culture as much as they did. I never went back, and I'm sure they never gave me a second thought. You might think that this ethos of works and performance, a community of the strong, is what James is trying to produce in these churches. But that's not the case, as we see in these final two verses of his. For the strayers, the wanderers, the sinners... He doesn't have this attitude of, good riddance, you're better off without them. They'll only bring you down and infect you with their low standards, low morality, and low energy. What does he tell his people? Go get them. Bring them back home. Bring them back to what? What did they wander from? From discipline, from hard work, from high standards, from righteousness, No, they wandered from the truth. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, right, brings him back to what? To the truth, to the gospel. Chapter one of James is the other place where he addresses the truth. One, 18, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Gospel truth is that which gives us new life. It's given to us by God. Which is why getting back to our current passage, verse 20, James says that when someone comes back to the truth, their soul is saved from death and their multitude of sins is covered. At cursory glance, it might look like this, might not look like it, but this truth is what James is all about. The emotional climax of the letter, the heart of what James is getting at, is at the beginning of chapter 4, where he calls his readers adulterers and friends of the world, and enemies of God. And it's there that James says next, but God gives more grace. What do we do as we realize we will not be the best people we want to be when we realize that all of our desires are mixed with good and bad motives? James says we humble ourselves and repent. We rely on God's grace and power. The only time James uses the word grace in his whole letter is here. In chapter 4, at the climax, when a community is centered around God's standard of righteousness and holiness, it will not become a brittle, self-righteous, inward church, because really taking God's standards seriously means entrusting yourself to his grace. You have no other choice. A community that thinks that they're really close to God's standards, almost there, just a little more consistency, a little more hard work, they're fooling themselves, and they're actually keeping others away. This was Jesus' charge against the Pharisees in his day. We need our hearts tuned to God's standards, and the only way that happens is by his grace. Our souls need rescuing from death, and our sins need covering. So the way that we proceed is in humility and repentance. When this is how we understand God's work in our lives, this propels us outwards to bring back sinners who have wandered and also sinners who have never stepped foot in church. If we, if we misread James and the rest of Scripture, if we miss the main point of God's grace, then we won't move toward wanderers and sinners for one of two reasons. One, we're just better than them. We get God and mostly live up to his standards like I've already talked about. In that mindset, going after wanderers and sinners would dilute the purity of our community and, and set us back. But the other reason why we might not go after wanderers and sinners, and I think this better describes us, is because we don't think we're doing it right either. How can I call someone back to God when I'm not following well, when I'm just barely hanging on? How can I call someone from being friends with the world when I'm a pretty good friend of the world? It's the imposter syndrome. And I mentioned it here recently, the imposter syndrome. Lots of people in Silicon Valley seem to struggle with this. I didn't go to the right school. I don't have mad skills. I'm not connected to the right people. I haven't been part of a successful startup. I don't have a well-informed opinion about anything and everything, whatever. I know many of us feel this way about fitting in to Silicon Valley culture. But I think most of us feel this way even more about Christianity and Christian living. I don't pray enough. I don't know the Bible well enough. I don't give enough. I don't do enough. I'm not enough. So, how dare I call people back to something I'm failing at? But calling people back to the truth is not calling them back to discipline or hard work or moral purity or justice, stuff that you're failing at. You're calling people back to God's grace. That's the truth. This doesn't make you an imposter or hypocrite because when you call to them, you're saying, You need Jesus too. You need to be rescued from death. You need your sin covered. You're the biggest failure you know. By definition, by definition, you have no righteousness of your own. You are no better. Calling people back to the truth is not calling them to a graduate school in moral perfection where you're a postdoc, it's calling them to a hospital for sinners where you are a full-time patient and resident. Anyone can do that. If you've been a Christian for 60 seconds, you can do that. Anyone can go and call back a wanderer or just a regular person who never knew God in the first place. Where? Where do I do this? You do it in all your various communities, your home, neighborhood, school, recreation, work. How do I do it? By caring for people, being kind to them, by being a friend, by sharing your life. And that's costly. Calling people back to the truth, loving and caring for them can be very costly. It can be heartbreaking. It can hurt relationships. It can threaten careers. At a minimum, it takes precious time that we feel like we don't have. And so that's another reason why we might struggle to call people back to the truth. Because we count the cost to us, and it seems too high. And so that's something else we see here in James, count the cost. Verse 20, again, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is a language of cost, it's payment. We still use the word cover this way, right? Who's paying? Don't worry, I got it covered. Back in 2003, Anthony Carter was a very average bench player for the NBA team Miami Heat. He averaged four points a game, yet he was set to collect $4 million from his contract the coming season. All he needed to do was have his agent, Bill Duffy, notify the Heat by June 30th that year that he was coming back. Of course he would come back. That date came and went. The Heat received no word from his agent, Duffy. Carter was released, and a new team picked him up for... $750,000. He lost over $3 million because his agent absentmindedly missed the deadline. Instead of pointing fingers and lawyering up, the agent sat down with Carter and worked out a payment plan to pay him back. It just ended this past year. Duffy paid back all the money he lost Carter. He covered his $3 million mistake. Covering something is costly, and that's what Jesus does for us, but instead of fixing his mistake, Jesus covers all of ours. He pays for our sin, which amounts to far more than a few million dollars. The cost is Jesus' life on the cross. He covers our sin by offering himself up as payment. The Son of God stands in our place. He gives up his life and soul to save ours. That's one reason why this passage is worth studying on Palm Sunday. Jesus heads toward Jerusalem knowing exactly what he was in for. We just read the passage at Confession and Renewal. He weeps over Jerusalem. He knows he is going to be rejected, betrayed, handed over to the Gentiles and crucified. He comes to make payment to cover the cost of our salvation and forgiveness. Sometimes we're really good at counting the cost of calling someone back to the truth. What would that cost us? But we aren't really good at counting the cost of Jesus calling us back and bringing us back. Like most kids, mine are interested in how much things cost, how much we pay for stuff, how much I get paid for work, etc. Anything over $100, we usually don't attach any numbers to. So for the question, how much do I get paid? The answer is I get paid generously and God takes good care of us. But every once in a while, I will give the exact cost of something. That iPad costs $700. Don't break it. (laughs) Or when we're having a great time on vacation, and they ask, how much did this cost, the house that we rented? right? And I'll tell them, $1,000. And they're like, wow, Daddy, thank you so much. And I can see their demeanor change. They know they've received something costly and worthwhile. They savor and enjoy it more. They know the price. On the other hand, when something is cheap or free, all of us more easily take it for granted and treat it poorly. The cost to cover your sins and save your soul from death is the highest possible amount. It is the torture and death of the author of life. Psalm 49, one of the hidden gems of the Psalms, says this, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. But Jesus does the impossible. He is the word by which all things are created and the only truly righteous and innocent man ever to live. And by willingly offering himself up, It's actually enough to ransom us. He walked into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago to cover you. By all means, count the cost. Calling people to the truth will cost you something. Time, preferences, social standing, money, sometimes your freedom, maybe even your very life. But you can pay these because of how Jesus has already paid for you. He's got you covered. Make sure you count that cost. The movie A Hidden Life is about the modern Catholic martyr Franz Jagerstatter, an Austrian who refused to fight for the Nazis in World War II. He found his faith convictions at odds with Nazi ideology and practices. In the middle of the movie where he has to come to a decision, he's counting the cost of going in either direction, fighting for the Nazis or or not, and going to a concentration camp. And he has this conversation with a painter in his village church. The painter is there restoring the interior frescoes of biblical imagery on all the walls. This is what the painter says to him. I paint the tombs of the prophets. I help people look up from these pews and dream. They look up and they imagine that if they had lived in Christ's time, they would never have done what those others did. I paint all this suffering and don't suffer myself. I make a living of it. What we do is just create sympathy. We create admirers. We don't create followers. Christ's life is a demand. We don't want to be reminded of it. So we don't have to see what happens to the truth. Darker times are coming when men will be more clever. They won't fight the truth. They'll just ignore it. I paint their comfortable Christ with a halo over his head. How can I show what I haven't lived? Someday I might have the courage to venture. Not yet. Someday I'll paint the true Christ. It's a chilling scene. When Jesus walked into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he was heralded by the crowds. He was greeted by admirers. Within five days on Good Friday... He still had a few admirers left, but he had zero followers. Jesus covers us in his death and resurrection, not to make us admirers, but to make us followers. Following is costly, so count the cost. How does the cost of Jesus covering you compare to the cost of you calling others back to him? James, our author, he knew the cost comparison. If you're familiar with the four gospels, the account of Jesus' earthly ministry, you might wonder, where is this James? He isn't one of the original twelve disciples. He's only mentioned briefly as one of Jesus' actual brothers who kind of mock him and think he's crazy. James was neither a follower nor believer nor even admirer of Jesus during his ministry on earth. But then in maybe the earliest New Testament book of all, Paul's letter to the Galatians, James shows up as the most important apostle and leader in Jerusalem. Paul says, even James approved of my message. I got James a stamp of approval. So where does he come from? How did he go from being a scoffer and wanderer to one of the pillars of the church? Well, it's actually something else we learn from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul gives the official testimony of Jesus' resurrection. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. After his resurrection, Jesus specifically sought out and appeared to his brother James. Like we see him do with his disciples and Paul. And he sent James out as an apostle. Jesus entered Jerusalem 2,000 years ago for all of us, but in a very specific way to call back his brother James, who had wandered from the truth. James saw his brother resurrected from the dead with nail holes in his hands and feet, Jesus counted the cost and paid it, and now James knew it. And so James spent the rest of his life calling his brothers and sisters back to the truth. He spent 30 years in Jerusalem leading the church there. A contemporary, non-Christian source tells us that James was killed sometime around the year 62 by the high priest in Jerusalem because they were between Roman procurators and they could get away with it because Rome wouldn't let uh, the Jewish authorities execute anybody. One Christian account says that the authorities set James up on a high point at the temple to preach against Christ, but instead he called people to Christ. They threw him down, beat, and stoned him to death. James counted the cost, and it was totally worth it to him. He died calling his wandering brothers and sisters back to the truth. You know, Maybe you're here, or maybe you're listening, and you're one of those wandering brothers and sisters. Maybe you've wandered from the truth, or never gave God's truth much thought at all. If so, listen to this story from Timothy Jones, a pastor, writer in Louisville. Our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. After a couple rough years, they dissolved the adoption, and we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, when our daughter's previous family vacation to Disney World they took their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. And so by the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen many pictures of Disney World, and she had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades, but when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she had always been the one left on the outside. Once I found out about this story, I made plans to take her to Disney World. But in the month leading up to our trip to the Magic Kingdom, she stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. As the day approached, things got worse and worse. A couple of days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk her through her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she stated flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make some sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into Magic Kingdom. She had tried and failed the test several times before, so she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded. Brown eyes wide and tear-rimmed. Are you a part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and wrong, but you're a part of the family and we're not leaving you behind. I'd like to say that her behavior grew better after that moment. It didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop on the way. Still, we headed to Disney World on the day we had promised, and it was a typical Disney day that we spent there. In our hotel room, that evening, a very different child emerged. Her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her. I held her and asked, So, how was your first day at Disney World? After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. This is the truth God is calling you to right now. This coming week, 2,000 years ago, God gave his son to make you a son of his, to make you a daughter of his. It's not about being good. It's about being covered by Jesus. And the more you are anchored in this reality, like James was, the more you'll want God and his righteousness. And you'll even begin calling others to receive and experience this forever love you've been given. Let's pray for that now. God, we are grateful for your word and we are grateful that through it and by your spirit you call us back to the truth. Please help us to draw nearer and nearer to the truth of your love for us and your son Jesus Christ. And make us a people who are so rooted in your love and grace that we want to see others receive and experience this as well. It is costly to go after others, but help us to do that. Help us to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Make us followers, not admirers. Propel us by your love and grace. Fill us with your spirit and strengthen us now as we turn to your sacrament, to this meal where we feed on Jesus. Help us to be united to him in faith and enable us to go from here loving you and loving the world you've made around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.